This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, in Britain, things are moving and for the first time, really, publicly, people are beginning to question not Brexit as such, but the hard Brexit that Britain ended up with in the end. And there is talk over the weekend of Britain having a Swiss-style deal with the EU. The Swiss don't, um, they're not part of the single market or the customs union, but they do have a relationship with Europe uh, that is compatible for both sides. And the director general of uh, the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, which has 190,000 members, uh, Tony Danker is his name. They're a very influential body. And he also referenced the Brexit deal as currently existing as damaging. He said there are one million job vacancies in Britain and we had to do something about it also. And this is most serious. The Northern Ireland Protocol is also being questioned now because that is the most contentious, outstanding issue between the UK and Brussels. One other fact to put into this equation is a YouGov poll which shows that 56% of Britons think Brexit was a mistake and only 32% believe that they should stick with what they have. We're joined now from London by Chris Johns. Chris, former chief economist with the Bank of Ireland, now a respected commentator. Chris, there seems to be in its economic crisis with the budget and the autumn statement which I want to ask you about in a moment, and the Liz Trust quasi-quatang experience, there seems to be a wake-up happening in Britain about Brexit and the damage it's done. Even yesterday, uh, Max Hastings, a conservative icon, really, he's a military historian, he was the former editor of The Telegraph, and he suggested, he talked, uh, he was reviewing a book, uh, which, and he talked about the death 
throes of unionism and suggested a United Ireland poll might be the right way to go. So there's quite a lot happening. Um, and as I say, we're joined by Chris Johns. Chris, I don't know where to start, but maybe the best place to start is last Thursday's autumn statement by Jeremy Hunt, the new chancellor, and of course, Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, who had been chancellor until he upset Boris Johnson or Boris Johnson upset him. But I want to ask you about the difference between that autumn statement of last Thursday and Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss's effort about five or six weeks ago. Could they be looking at the same country and the same picture because they both, they seem so vastly different? Well, was it the same political party that delivered both budgets? They didn't right. call them budgets, but that's what they were. And both were incredibly consequential. The damage that the Liz Truss quasi Quatang budget still reverberates and uh, reverberated right into that autumn statement of last Thursday. Clearly, one of the consequences of the Quatang budget was that the frighteners were put on uh, Hunt in particular, but also Sunak. And so they were bending over backwards to, to achieve uh, financial market stability, to achieve a financial market response to their budget that was unremarkable. And they got that. Yes. So they had to kowtow to the markets in a way that I've not seen British Chancellor of the Exchequer have to do for a very, very long time. It was the market, financial market reaction to that first budget that clearly scared them to death. So their first objective was realizing that the markets have been quite calm in, res in response to the autumn statement. But within the autumn statement itself, of course, was contained all sorts of things that we could talk all day about. Uh, the, the, the charts, the tables, the figures, they're all very dry, but they contain very real and profound and frightening implications for the UK as a whole, for almost everybody in the UK. There was a chart that said that the falling living standards um, over the next couple of years will be the biggest in recorded history. And that series goes all the way back to the 1950s. That's a fall in real disposable income. Again, dry economic statistics that speak to people's lives. There is a real problem with living standards in the UK now. There has been for some time, but it's going to be as bad as it's ever been, if not worse, over the next 12 to 24 months. That was explicit in the forecasts. Some of the view of it, they, yes. they took what Kwarteng did and did two things. They either... Uh, simply said, no, we're not going to do that. So whatever the measure that Kwarteng did was they cancelled it, or they took what he did. And as I say, sometimes say they changed the signs. So if we put something up, they put it down. Where he abolished a tax, they put it up. So there's a top rate of tax that he abolished, for example, and they actually reinstated it and reinstated it at a level at which many, many more people will now pay. So they didn't just uh, abolish his budget, they reversed it. So it was an extraordinary tour de force in repudiation and serial U-turns of everything that Kwarteng did. Now, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Chris, is, uh, and I'm thinking now in the context of the Director General of the CBI yesterday morning talking publicly about the need to revisit Brexit, to amend things. One of the most contentious things is the Northern Ireland Protocol. There's no assembly sitting now, and it hasn't been for months, but there was due to be an election on December 15th, which has been postponed by the Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, who was Boris Johnson's last chief whip. So 
I'm not sure whether he's gone up in the world or down in the world, but he's postponed it for three months. There doesn't appear to be a consensus about what to do about Northern Ireland because they, the, the, in Northern Ireland, they had the best of both worlds. They were in the single market and they also had access to the UK. And I read in the Sunday Times yesterday a book review by Max Hastings and Max Hastings believes that Britons don't want to be in Ireland, that they no, don't know much about Ireland, and they certainly don't want to be in government in Ireland. And he suggested a border poll was the best. Now, to have Max Hastings suggesting a border poll gives you some idea of how the wind is blowing in Britain on the question of on what might be called the Irish question. Yeah, you're absolutely right to suggest that it doesn't attract an awful lot of attention. People aren't that interested. They should be, of course, but it is a brutal fact of life that not many people in Britain devote much thought space to matters Irish, particularly Northern Irish. Max Hastings does have previous, of course. He was a young correspondent in the North in the early 1970s when the troubles were raging. And in that article that you referred to there, he declared himself as essentially a soft Republican ever since those days when he saw um, on the ground what was being done. And and he's been consistent for decades in that he thinks that uh, the British should allow reunification of, of Ireland. So he, as you say, is a very unusual Tory. And um, he, I should say, we should, we should, I should just, we both know this, and I'm sure most of our listeners do. He was the first person uh, who had been, a uh, he'd been Johnson's boss, who wrote a long piece suggesting that Boris Johnson was a, a, a wrong one and would damage anything he touched. And it's been quoted over the years many times, many times by me, but many times by other people as well. So he was prescient in that regard. So they're trying to find their way through this dilemma uh, that they have had for six and a half years now since the Brexit referendum, which is the one that you and I have talked about many, many times. That you've either got to have as a result of the hard Brexit that they chose, and it's important to emphasize that, that there were alternative forms of Brexit available to them that wouldn't have led to this situation. But the one that Boris Johnson and the Conservative government went for was the hardest of all possible Brexits that mandated, absolutely mandated, either a border down the Irish Sea or a border on the island of Ireland. So there's no other way around it. They're trying to find one at the moment, and it is just about possible to see a fudge whereby the checks in on that in that border, if you like, down the Irish Sea, are minimised further. There aren't that many at the moment, but there, no, there, and there the are. EU has offered to minimise them. Yes, and, the, the, the EU offer is to take even more of them off the table and to yeah. try to deploy technology and trusted trader and all that kind of stuff, so that the the intrusive nature of the checks are brought to an absolute minimum. The issue, and that's where they, that's what's going to come out of these negotiations, one suspects. Don't know, but that is where it's going. Now, the problem that they've got is that even that won't be enough for the DUP in Northern Ireland and their intellectual bedfellows, ideological bedfellows, the ERG, the European Research Group, which essentially is most of the backbench Tory party. That's the other point about this, is that sometimes the ERG is spoken of is the, as this fringe grouping of Tory backbenchers, they're not. They're, yeah. the, the members of it and their fellow travellers essentially constitute the, the backbenches of the Tory party. And this is Sunak's and Hunt's problem. 
that they have got to try and square this impossible circle. Um, and the, the, the number of red lines that the ERG have declared are, first of all, no checks at all, and we ain't going to get that for sure. And the big one is the role of the European Court of Justice, yes. because that's the red line for Europe. The, 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 that could be fudged. There could be an intermediate step put in, a, a, a joint committee of some kind with representatives from both sides, if there ever is a complaint or an infringement that needs to be investigated, could go to this committee before it ends up with the ECJ. And it might well be in practice that nothing ever reaches the ECJ as a result of whatever they manage to negotiate over the next while. But because it will have the European Court of Justice potentially as the ultimate arbiter of this agreement, this is the absolute red line for both sides. One wants it, the other doesn't. I find it very difficult to see how they are going to pull this off without the Tory party fracturing again. And this is related to the comments that you made earlier about the um, uh, suggestion over the weekend that we get a Swiss-style arrangement. Now, you might remember that Seamus Mallon famously described um, the yep. Belfast Agreement as Sunningdale for slow learners. Yes. This Swiss suggestion is actually the Chequers Brexit Agreement. You might remember that phrase, that one I of do, the many yeah. potential deals, this was Theresa May's deal, yes. the so-called Chequers deal that Boris Johnson um, reluctantly signed up to and then said, I, I didn't really mean to sign. Um, this is checkers for slow learners, this this um, this Swiss-style arrangement. It's nuts. It, it isn't going to happen, and we can talk about that if you like. But if they had a Swiss-style arrangement, a checkers-style arrangement with the EU, the Northern Ireland border question would not have arisen. Yes. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food 
food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively, but not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more. Now, I want to ask you about the YouGov poll. What it suggests is that 56% would have no problem being in the EU. 32% are still clinging to that sort of visceral feeling, I think, that was around at both the referendum time and uh, ultimately when Johnson got that 80-seat majority. It seems that Britain is a divided society now in a big way. And what makes it even worse is Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, he was against Brexit, and the Labour Party general was. But he can't say it. So when he's asked now, he says, no, no, we'll leave Brexit alone. So there's this incredible division in Britain between people and I think you're one of them, and I know the director of the CBI, director general of the CBI, Tony Danker, is one of them, who really think this was a, this is madness. Uh, it's hurting us. It's hurting our economy. Europe is our biggest trading partner. Why are we doing this to ourselves? And there's 32% who may be, well, we might call little Englanders, who are holding the whole thing up. Absolutely. And th- there are so many strands there that one one could unpick. The, the, the simple fact is that Brexit has damaged the UK economy. And your perspective on that depends on which side of the political divide, the other ideological divide you sit on. First of all, first question you've got to answer, are you a pragmatist that is swayed by data, by facts, by reality? Yeah. And a small number of people, and I'm afraid it is a small number of people, have been swayed. I'm surprised it's not bigger um, I'm disappointed it's not bigger. But from uh, ex-members of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England said it only last week, the Office for Budget Responsibility, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the Governor of the Bank of England, and a whole host of independent experts um, and not-so-independent experts have come up with calculations for how much damage the that Brexit has done to Britain. And the numbers range from big to very big. And everybody has agreed on that. There are a diehard number of people um, who say that it's too soon to tell. So they are like those ex-communist socialists who always argue that the reason why socialism hasn't worked is that A, it hasn't been applied properly, and B, you've got to give it more time. The Jacob Rees-Mogg's of this world are very much in that, that camp, and he's said explicitly, give it 50 years, and then I'll answer your question. The, they also firmly believe from this ideological perch that even if, and most of them deny the economic damage, but even if there has been visible economic damage from Brexit, which of course there has been, they say that it doesn't matter, that it's a price worth paying for what? For, for sovereignty, for taking control of our, what's that slogan? We want control back of our money, our borders and our laws. Yeah. All that Taking nonsense. back control was the, was the phrase. Yeah. So they, they think that the economic price is either worth paying or they deny that it, it's in existence. And that muddies the waters, of course. So not enough people are saying it was a disaster, but that you're right. 
that YouGov poll does show there has been a discernible shift. It isn't massive, but it would lead you to conclude, for example, if you re-ran the, the referendum, that uh, it would probably go the other way now. That's that's what we think. But of course, the, the other aspect that you touched on there is that all of this in British political life, including Keir Starmer's life, is a taboo subject. Yes. This is something you are not allowed to talk about in Britain anymore, not least in Westminster um, and when you are interviewing Keir Starmer. And I think that there, there, there's one aspect to this that I understand and one that I would criticize him for. I think the thing that I understand is that he. this is the old Napoleonic thing about don't interrupt your enemy while he's making mistakes. And um, he doesn't have to do anything about Brexit very much when it's so obvious that the Tories are in turmoil over the economic consequences. So as much as you can deny that they exist, the fact that they have produced the outcome for the UK economy that we're actually living in, which means that you have to deliver austerity 2.0 last week, means that the, the, the political impact for them is is clear and, and visible. The, the problem, the, Chris, yeah. just to, while you're on the subject, among the 32% who are delighted with Brexit are natural Labour voters. They would be in those red wall seats. That's why Boris Johnson and the Tories won those red wall seats. And that presents a massive problem for the Labour Party. Absolutely. The, his fear is that if he started talking about Brexit, it would enable the Tories to shine the spotlight back on him and say that he's just a Remainer. He's going to um, take, you know, do all the things that we always said that they would do. They, they're going to get closer to Brussels. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And therefore, you should stick with us because we are the only two protectors of sovereignty. We are the only people protective of your democratic rights. That's what he's afraid of. I think that fear is real, but exaggerated. I think that that would cheese off a lot of Red Wall voters, but not so many now that that would erode completely his electoral advantage, at least as revealed in the opinion poll. So I think it's a misjudgment on his part. But because of that first point, which is that he doesn't really have to say anything at the moment because yes. uh, politically he's in such a strong position. Why take that risk of cheesing off of, some of, of your natural voters? So I think that's where he's at. I don't think it's an honourable position for him to take because I do think that Brexit is so harmful for the UK economy. Um, and it's not just the UK economy. I think it's polluted so much else about daily life in Britain, about you know the, the normalisation of political lying, the abuse of language, the way in which it enables, frankly, fantasy to, to persist uh, across a whole range of, of, of policies and life in Britain. And, and, and that division that you spoke of earlier on will not be healed until somebody faces up to the reality and the facts on the ground, until we actually confront the truth, deal with it one way or another, and um, we will persist with this division. That, I think, is, is, is as fundamental a problem as, as is the economic one. But the economic uh, yeah. problem is, is revealed by that autumn statement. You've now had an economy that hasn't grown for, for a decade or more. And so what there becomes is, is, is a bun fight over the spoils from an economy that isn't growing, and that and that gets vicious when you don't have when you're trying to split a cake that isn't growing in size. You're just trying to split the existing cake, which might even be shrinking now. Then the, the political the politics of that become really poisonous. Yes, and you have a divided Tory party that has rid itself of what are called one nation Tories. That that is the Ken Clarks and people like that, who basically believe in the one nation concept, which is not something 
that the European Research Group share at all. They are hard right, and uh, this trust would be a good example of it. Uh, hard right, do what we're going to do our thing and let the strongest survive and the weakest go to the wall. And among the weakest would be a lot of those people in the 32% who are living now and going to be for the foreseeable future in grinding poverty. The poverty thing, I think, is becoming quite real in terms of perception. It's been around for a long time. And the best way I can summarize that is quoting some stats at you. They're a bit dry, but I think very, very powerful, which is that if you are in the top half of the UK income distribution, if you're reasonably well off, um, so in the top 50 and the further you go towards the top, the better this statistic becomes, you are in a very similar economic position to the ones, similar people in France, Germany, the people that we compare ourselves to. If you are in the middle, at, you know, absolutely bang in the middle of the UK income distribution, you are 20% worse off than your equivalent person in France. Yes. If you're at the bottom of the UK income distribution, you are 40% worse off than you are your, than your equivalent person in France. So this is a country where if you're well off, you're very comfortable in absolute terms, and you compare equivalently to your European counterparts. The problem for the UK is it at, in the middle of the income distribution now, because it's not just at the bottom, but once you get to the middle and then work your way down, you are getting real, real problems. Yes. And, and there is more and more publicity about this around the place now, more than there has been for a long period of time. This is a direct consequence of two things. One, what we did to ourselves in the 1980s, now, this, is, this is the legacy, one of the many legacies of Thatcherism, is that that pro produced measured increase in inequality that then didn't get any worse uh, right up until George Osborne's austerity. And then he made it worse again. So a combination of the 1980s inequality that was produced here. So now the UK has uh, the most unequal uh, society, most unequal economy in Europe. It's United States-like, and yet it has its highest tax burden. So the, the old cliche is that Britain has this problem of wanting American-style taxation, but European-style social policies. We now have the reverse. We have the worst of all worlds. We have a we have European-style taxation, but American-style inequality. You couldn't make it up. Let me ask you a, a non-expert question about how British people feel now about their country and about themselves. There's a kind of, if you go to France, you can tell that despite their politics, it is a nation largely at ease with itself. Certainly if you come to Ireland, for all that there is appalling health service, appalling housing crisis, it is a country that is where fundamentally decent people are, are doing their best. You get the impression in England that there are too many Jacob Rees-Mogg's, too many spivs like Boris Johnson and his cronies. They seem to be endless. They're popping up everywhere, notably in the House of Lords, I should say, or with knighthoods. I saw a guy, Gavin William, Williamson, yeah. Sir Gavin Williamson now, sacked yet again. That's the third time he's been sacked. But I, I want to go back to... To, to you as a person and, and your sort of friends, family, colleagues, is there any sense that something really precious has been lost? Yes. And that it's becoming a harsher, meaner, uh, yes. spivvy 
society. It obviously depends on you speak to whom you speak to. One of the things that happens if you if you go with anybody to Ireland or Europe or speak to anybody that travels is that they, people are starting to notice the fabric, the physical fabric of our towns and cities, how much worse they are than places yes. in Ireland and continental Europe. One of the things that we have here is a class of politicians that is two, has two, I think, distinguishing characteristics, with honourable exceptions, but you mentioned Gavin Williamson, people like that. Matt Hancock springs to mind. Yeah, that we here we have a, a a not very good, not very competent, not not just not good at what they do. Class of ruler that these people just aren't very good at what they do. They're not competent, and secondly, uh, and as I say, we must be careful with language. But they're nasty. They're, they're horrible yeah. people. They're bullies. Yes. They're you know they are convicted yes. bullies. They are liars. They they really are horrible human beings. Yes. And can you say that about your body politic in Ireland? You could criticize no. Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin till the cows come home for things that they do, things that they say. But can you put your hand on your heart and say these re are really horrible, bullying, nasty politicians? I don't think you can. I think that would be mm. I mean, just wrong. So Dominic Grab, for example, who is now deputy prime minister. Uh, he is facing bullying charges now. Priti Patel, when she was Home Secretary, and indeed in her previous cabinet office, was has been done for bullying three times. And the people that, that Johnson brought into the cabinet, I mean, Gavin Williamson would be a, a very good example. Hancock would be another, who's now in the jungle fighting for his life. This class of person really, really doesn't seem to me to be representative of the British people. I don't think it is. I certainly hope it's not. And we are very ill-served by these politicians, but th th that's what we've got. And so that makes me and, and lots of others, you asked about my friends and family, very yeah. fearful for the future because it is slowly being recognized. And I somewhat sometimes unkindly described it as boil frog, boil frog syndrome, that you, you don't actually notice that things are getting worse gradually. But and, uh, as revealed by that YouGov poll and other polls, people are at the edges starting to notice that nothing works anymore, that our physical infrastructure is decaying, that our rulers are incompetent. And what does that mean for the future? And as an economist, I would say that one of the things that was revealed by the autumn statement, and this has been said many times, and I would shout this from the rooftops as well, is that the only thing that ever solves any of this, or at least a necessary condition, other things have to fall into place. We have to get a nicer, more competent political class. But the economy has to start growing again. Something has to be done to get the economy growing. And that awareness, I think, is growing because the growth has just been so absent in recent years. And there was nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, in that autumn statement that suggested how we were, are going to get the UK economy back to growth. The UK economy will be the worst performing in Europe next year by a long way. The Irish economy, incidentally, will be probably, on current forecasts, the best. That gap the gap between Ireland and Britain that decades yes. ago was one way is now switched. Ireland, economically speaking, is in so much a better position than the UK. It really needs remarking on, I think, it is because it is remarkable. Um, so the, the absence of a growth strategy is, is, the, is the thing that is there. And that reveals the fundamental political problem facing Sunak, because he's got this, this bunch of ERG nutcases at his back in the House yes. of Commons. And they are not interested in economic growth. They're not interested in the economic growth consequences of Brexit. They're not interested in the consequences of the Northern Ireland Protocol for Ireland. They are interested only in their ideological purity. So you have 
a, a party that says that it wants economic growth. That's what Liz Truss said. But when you look at the actual things that they could do to promote economic growth, they're against it all. So I think that the, the, one of the very fundamental questions about the future of the UK is that given you have this ruling party that is so in terms of what it actually believes in, anti-growth, and it's the lack of growth that is causing most of these political, economic and social problems. I wonder about the future of the Tory party itself, actually. I just think that it's become ungovernable and um, so faction factionalized. I don't see how that's brought together. I don't see how the Tory party in its current form ruling the UK is consistent with the UK getting any better. Let me just ask you a final question, Chris. Some of the measures, I think particularly on uh, public spending cuts or on public spending, they've been postponed for two years, which is after the next election. Is, is there something democratically unsatisfactory about a government that is widely despised and has made a wreck of the British economy, uh, introducing even more severe measures, but delaying them so that the next government will have to legislate for them. <laughs> Is that fair? Well, the, the, the type of spending cuts that are being penciled in for the post-election period, two plus years hence, they yeah. won't happen. They can't because the, the public sector has been so defenestrated by years of austerity 1.0, that this austerity 2.0 that is promised for after the election, it can't happen without a collapse of a whole range of public sector services. It just, it just can't happen. Um, and so it is, in a way, a trap for any incoming Labour governments. They're, yeah, yeah. they're going to have a very difficult economic situation um, to, to deal with. And uh, I, I do not envy them their task. But it was a standard political trick, which was right. to promise to balance the books, but not yet. And this has been done many times before. It'll be done again, and it won't happen in this way. But Britain financially and economically is in a lot of trouble, because one of the things that's going to happen as a result of this is that contrary to all of the speculation running into the budget about massive spending cuts coming very quickly, they actually put spending up a little for the next two years. <laughs> and as a result, they, they're going to have to borrow an awful lot of money this year, next year and the year after, eye-watering amounts of money because they have uh, the, the existing borrowing requirements and they've got an awful lot of past debt rolling over. It's a technical point, but the actual amount of money, government bonds, that they've got to sell this year and next is eye-watering. And I think that's going to lead to interesting problems for them as well. Okay, Chris, as always, uh, fascinating to talk to you and we're very grateful to Chris Johns, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast, Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. 
The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.